Welcome back to Presenting the Past, a podcast series exploring the digitized collections of public radio and television in the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, otherwise known as the AAPB. I'm Christine Becker, Associate Professor in the Department of Film, Television, and Theater at the University of Notre Dame and co-host of the ACA Media podcast from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. The AAPB website features nearly 60,000 public radio and television items streaming online, and this podcast brings you conversations with the researchers, scholars, educators, and media producers who have used that archival material, and they share their insights on what they have found. We've got a very special episode today, and incredibly excited to introduce my two guests for this episode. Um, first of all, not only one of the most important people in the history of American television, but in saying that, he's one of the most uh, important people in American public life. Um, and this is Newton Minow, former chairman of the Federal Communications Commission and an instrumental player in the development of non-commercial and educational television, and also a former member of the AAPB Executive uh, Advisory Council. So welcome to Presenting the Past, Mr. Minow. I'm very honored to be here today. Thank you. And I'm also delighted that we're joined by one of his daughters, uh, each of whom is extremely accomplished in their own right. And we have here with us Mary Minow, a lawyer, librarian, and library law consultant with expertise in intellectual property and copyright law and issues of concern to libraries. And she is a current AAPB Executive Advisory Council member. So thank you so much um, for welcoming us here, Mary. Thank you. And I'm uh, so excited to moderate this conversation between you two as you reflect back on Mr. Minow's incredibly important and influential career in public media. Uh, I also feel compelled to note, Mr. Minow, because uh, I teach at the University of Notre Dame, you are um, a life trustee of the board of the University of Notre Dame. Uh, I teach a history of television course for my department, Department of Film, Television, Theater. All of my students read, discuss, debate your famed Vast Wasteland speech, of course. But I'll also note that they learn the importance of the accomplishments like uh, my favorite unsung piece of policy in the history of television, um, the All Channel Receiver Act. I think people don't know how different TV would be if that hadn't been passed, and the Educational Television Facilities Act, too. And so we're going to discuss all of the nuances of that. Um, so everyone listening will be like an honorary student in my history of television class right now. Um, so we're going to delve into greater detail on that, um, and Mary's going to start out the conversation for us, and, and I'll jump in and uh, I look forward to this conversation. Thank you. As a family member, I am interested in your family background and your first exposure um, to media and its effect on the public through family and through your, your years in the Army. Well, when I enlisted uh, in World War II in the Army when I was 17 years old, and I ended up as a sergeant in a communications battalion in the China-Burma-India theater. And I was very impressed with the film training programs that all Army uh, people were, were given, and I was my first exposure to education through film. Then, when I was in India, very often at night, uh, we would show movies outdoors, and um, we would drive in trucks to an area and uh, get dark, and then when the movie was over, we'd get in the trucks to uh, go back to the barracks, and the lights would go on in the trucks, and we would see Indians all over the area, particularly in the trees, watching the movies. And I realized for the first time in my life, I was still a youngster, how important it was to use film and use pictures to teach. 
I realized that this medium could be a powerful contributor to improving education. Fascinating. And then I understand that you were had a very pivotal conversation with um, Robert F. Kennedy in 1956 about the effect of television on children. Can you tell us about that? In 56, my boss, Edley Stevenson, was running for president of the United States, and Bob Kennedy had been assigned by the Kennedy family to join the Stevenson staff so he would learn about a national political campaign. And because Bob and I were almost exactly the same age, we were just a few weeks apart in age, we often ended up together and sometimes roomed together. And when we got to uh, Springfield, Illinois, Bob said to me, uh, you and I have heard Edley's speech 5,000 times. <laughs> what if we played hooky? How far is Lincoln's house from here? And I said, we could get to Lincoln's house in about six or seven minutes and we can get back before the plane leaves, so let's go. So I took him to Lincoln's house and on the way back, he said to me uh, something that uh, turned out to be very important. He said, uh, you and I have children the same age. Uh, he said, in my house, I used to think that the three great influences on a child were the home, the school, and the church. He said, now in my house, there's a fourth great influence, and it's television. My kids are captivated by television. They're watching television all the time. Isn't there some way we could make it better? We could make it where the kids could learn something. So that was the first time that Bob became aware of my great interest. And I, at that time, was the lawyer for a company that made educational films, the Encyclopedia Britannica Film Company. And I would borrow some films occasionally and send them to Bob so his family could watch them on Saturday morning at home to give him an idea of how film could be used for education. And so then through the years, uh, we kept in close touch. And when President Kennedy was elected president, he asked me to become chairman of the Federal Communications Commission. And I took my family, including you, Mary, I think you were then about two or three years old, right. and we went off to Washington. That's really exciting. Um, and your first day at the FCC, there was an item about educational television funds. What did the commissioners think about that? Well, th this was the very first day on the job. And um, we had a commission meeting. And the question was a request from the Senate asking for our advice and our opinion on whether some federal funds should be appropriated to help local communities build an educational television station. And the staff recommendation to the commission was that we should say this was a policy question for the Congress and that we took no view on it. And I said, I don't agree with that. I think our job, as I understand the Federal Communications Act, is to promote the public interest in communication. Clearly, it's in the public interest to have educational television available for the uh, viewers. We should take a position in favor of this legislation. And so finally, we took a vote, and the vote was six to one. I was the only one who was willing to do this. 
And then we went in a hearing at the Senate, and I had to deliver the commission's view. So I delivered the commission's view, and I said, now there was one, one dissent. <laughs> and one of the senators said, what was the dissent? I said, it was my dissent, and I explained it. And that legislation eventually passed, along with other, other things we worked on. But that was my introduction to the federal government's relationship with educational television. Why were the six against, in particular? Believe me, it's a mystery to me to this wow. day, because <laughs> I saw no reason why they shouldn't have been all in, in favor. Hmm. Just like inertia? Inertia and, and not wanting to Didn't get into anything controversial. Mm, right. Positions. And you were not exactly shy, <laughs> even though you, oh. you were young and new. Um, and I think this was best exemplified by your famous vast wasteland speech. And I wanted to tell you that when I was studying for the LSAT to get into law school, there was an excerpt of the speech. And one of the questions was, the audience reaction was probably, and there were a few choices. I got it wrong. I gave it to you and mom. You both got it wrong. <laughs> and, <laughs> because we, we all checked shocked. And um, that was the incorrect answer. So you and I wrote a letter to the test makers uh, saying, well, actually, what's up? And they said, well, Mr. Minow, we've been using this test for 30 years. You're the first person to complain. <laughs> <laughs> and these kids would not have been aware that, that the audience would be shocked because they've grown up with the vast wasteland and criticism of television. So they wouldn't know that. And they stuck by their answer. But tell, tell us about the audience reaction that day. Well, the audience reaction, I think, was shock. And um, when the speech was, well, I have to give you the context. The day before, President Kennedy had spoken to the, the same group. In fact, there's an, I think, a very interesting story. I'm going to take the time to tell it here. This was in the early in the Kennedy administration. The first thing had gone very bad, which was the invasion of Cuba which was a disaster. But the second thing that happened, which was good, was the first launch into space it had been successful. And Commander Shepard had come back from space safely, and the White House had called me, said the president is speaking to the broadcasters, and he'd like you to accompany him. Would you come uh, to the Oval Office at such a time, and you will ride together to the um, broadcasters' convention? So I was waiting outside the president's office, and the president came out and he said, Newt, he said, I've got Commander Shepard and Mrs. Shepard in my office, and we're going to take them to Congress, but what if we took them first with us to the broadcasters' convention? I said, that would be perfect. So he said, okay, he said, let me arrange this. And he said, what do you think I should say to the broadcasters? And I said, I think you should explain how important it was for broadcasting to cover the launch so that every American could see and hear what happened. And you might add the difference between an open society and a closed society with the Russians. When they do anything in space, nobody knows what's going on. There's no broadcasting. Nobody can see or hear the... And he might mention that. The president doesn't say, doesn't say that's good, doesn't say that's bad, doesn't say anything. The president gives a graceful, perfect speech to the broadcasters explaining how important it was for broadcasting to cover the space shot 
and thank the broadcasters for educating the public. And um, the difference between a closed society and an open society, just perfect. The next day, I spoke before the same group. <laughs> and it was, it was a completely different because my speech was not uh, thanking them, but telling them that they could do a better job and should do a better job. And when my speech was over, I was standing with Governor Collins. He was the uh, president of the Broadcasters Association. A man came up to me and he said, Mr. Chairman, he said, that wasn't a very good speech. <laughs> and I said, thank you very much. And he left. And about three minutes later, he came back. He said, I've been thinking about it. That was really a lousy speech. <laughs> On second thought. <laughs> <laughs> then he came back the third thought. <laughs> And he said, as I reflect on it, it was probably the worst speech I ever heard in my life. And Governor Collins put his arm around me, and he said, don't let that man bother you, Newt. He said, he just repeats everything he hears. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the reaction to this. Well, you got a call that night from the president's father. I got two calls that night, uh, only two phone calls that night. One, the first was from Edward R. Murrow who was the great broadcaster, the great newscaster, who made his reputation broadcasting from London during the bombing in World War II. And Edward R. Murrow said, you stole my speech. <laughs> and I said, I said, what do you mean? He said, I gave the same speech in Chicago, in your hometown, 18 months ago. Well, I wasn't aware of his speech. And I then read his speech, and it was a better speech. <laughs> <laughs> And mine, and it had the same message that the broadcasters owed a greater duty to the viewers than they were exercising. The second call was from the White House. The operator from the White House came on and said, Mr. Minow, Ambassador Kennedy is calling. This was the president's father. And he said, quote, I'm giving it to you verbatim because it was a very short conversation. I thought he was going to bawl me out. And he called up, he said, that was the best speech since my son's inaugural address. He says, you keep it up. If anybody gives you any trouble, you call me. Goodbye. <laughs> that was the entire conversation. Well, that must have given you some confidence. Well, it um, did. Well, and we can treat our listeners to a clip and let them decide, is this the worst speech you've ever heard or the best speech you've ever heard? So let's listen to a clip from the uh, Vast Wasteland speech. So I have confidence in your health, but not in your product. When television is good, nothing, not the theater, not the magazines or newspapers, nothing is better. But when television is bad, nothing is worse. I invite each of you to sit down in front of your own television set when your station goes on the air and stay there for a day without a book, without a magazine, without a newspaper, without a profit and loss sheet or a rating book to distract you. Keep your eyes glued to that set until the station signs off. I can assure you that what you will observe is a vast wasteland. You will see a procession of game shows, formula comedies about totally unbelievable families, blood and thunder, mayhem, violence, Sadism, murder, Western bad men, Western good men, private eyes, gangsters, more violence and cartoons. And endlessly commercials, many screaming, cajoling and offending. And most of all, boredom. 
True, you'll see a few things you will enjoy, but they will be very, very few. And if you think I exaggerate, I only ask you to try it. University of Wisconsin-Madison, that's where my papers are. And the most amazing thing happened this week. Sherman Dorn, he found a letter which I had completely forgotten, which I got after the vast wasteland speech from Justice William O. Douglas of the Supreme Court, in which Justice Douglas said, that is a classic speech that will go down in history. Well, and I think then we've we've determined it is one of the greatest speeches, not one of the worst speeches, as the that Can other you guy imagine said. So. But imagine a Supreme letter. Court justice writing that letter. Stunning. But I had totally forgotten it, and he he resurrected it for me. This is sixty years later. Well, and then when I teach that speech, I mean, there's so many good lines, and, and just one my favorite line: "Tell your sponsors to be less concerned with cost per thousand and more concerned with understanding per millions." Like. I love that line. I want that on a throw pillow. That's just a gorgeous line. And there's so many just beautiful lines in there that are... Of course, I had a lot of help on that speech. Dad always credits... Um, John Bartle Martin. For a lot of it. Mm. He had written Vast Wasteland of Junk, and I crossed off of junk. And you had a couple people giving you drafts, and you worked it, you figured it out. The, li the line you just read was my line. All right. Oh, Okay. <laughs> What made you want to take out the of junk part? Well, it's interesting. I, you know, I thought a great deal about it. I, I didn't pay that much attention to it. I, really? <laughs> yeah, I, I paid zero attention to the uh, vast wasteland. Zero. And, <laughs> and uh, but I, I learned, you know, I, I learned a lot about the media. The media loves to pick a phrase. What are the two words you wish people remembered from the vast wasteland speech? I think they should be public interest. Uh, they shouldn't be vast. I'm surprised. The fact that vast wasteland is endured as a phrase is a huge surprise to me. I call it the first television soundbite. Yeah. And one thing that I really love about the archive is that you have the speech that he gave a year later to the mm. same group, and which I had never heard until this collection was put together. Well, you started this speech with a joke because you said, you know, two words have been talked about over the last year since my speech, and you kind of like teased it, and then you said, that's right, public interest, and you got a big laugh out of that, so that was, that was well played. <laughs> so let's listen to a clip from that. Now, I'm told that that speech last year raised the blood pressure of some people who were in television, and perhaps that's why we now have so much medical advice on television this year. Dr. Kildare has called Ben Casey in for consultation, and I'm told that even Dr. Frank Stanton has installed a couch in his office. <laughs> that speech last year ran about 6,000 words. Only two of those words survived the day. <laughs> and since last May, those two words, those two little words have been repeated over and over again on television, on the air, in the press. Some of you broadcasters tell me in your sleep. Of course, all of you know the two little words that I mean. Public interest. <laughs> Thinking about the public interest is a healthy occupation for all of us. For those of us who are directly concerned with broadcasting, 
it is more than just healthy. It is mandatory. That you here have been thinking about the public interest has become increasingly apparent on the television too. We at the Federal Communications Commission have also been thinking about it, and I believe increasingly doing something about it. And I'll have more to say about this later. And it was shocking to me because everybody's so cordial. Well, I think in the year, I think the broadcasters realized that what I was urging them to do was not only in the best interests of the country, and, and particularly the children, but also was in their best interest. If they were doing a better job, they would go home at night more proud of themselves than they, than they were before. And that message is certainly in the first speech. But as you say, I think maybe they were shocked. And I'm curious about that. Like, why were they shocked? And particularly coming out of the 50s, you know, there was a lot of, of controversy and, and, and complaints about television. Well, also, you've got to remember a couple of other things. There had been terrible scandals in the broadcasting business mm -hmm. involving the quiz shows and the uh, payola in the radio field. There had been scandals at the Federal Communications Commission. President Eisenhower had to fire the chairman of the FCC. Another one went to jail for bribery. The industry and the agency were both in trouble. And I think straightening both out to a certain extent was a relief for the, for the country. And I think a, a lot of the creative people in radio and television felt liberated as well. So looking back, I think the broadcasters at the beginning resented what I was saying, but I think by the time I left, they realized we were all trying to accomplish something that was worth, that was good, not bad. Where did the term public interest come from? That's a good question. I, I, I wish I knew the answer. It's, it's, been in, it's been in the law in the regulation of public utilities. You, you right. met with a man who stuck it into the act. Well, that I remember, because being a lawyer, I, when I first was appointed, I re read very, very carefully the Federal Communications Act, and I saw two contradictory provisions, one after the other. One, it says, broadcasting is not, not a public utility. The next section says, broadcasters must serve the public interest, convenience, and necessity. Those are the words of regulating a public utility. So I checked, and believe it or not, I found the man who wrote the law was still alive. He was the United States Senator from the state of Washington, Clarence Dill. And I called him, and I said, Mr. Dill, I said, I'd love to ask you a bunch of questions. He said, it was a matter of fact, he said, I'm coming to Washington next month. He said, I'll come to see you. So we had a good chance to talk. And I said, where'd you get public interest, convenience, and necessity, which is the language of utility regulation? And yet, in this paragraph before, you say broadcasting is not a public utility. He said, well, he said, I'll tell you exactly what happened. He said, we were trying to figure out some statutory standard. And I had a man at work for me who had come from the Interstate Commerce Commission, where the language was public interest, convenience, and necessity. I said, that sounds pretty good. <laughs> so, so he said, that's what we put in the street. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, 
so, you know, that's how history is made. Right. It's amazing how things happen. Right. And then you ran with the phrase. Yeah. <laughs> they, so that's how much thought went into it. But, but it sounds good. Now, since you came in after the payola scandals, how did you choose to handle that in the aftermath of that? Well, I said in the speech of the broadcaster, I said, let's not argue about the past. I said, you know, we could be fighting about everything that's gone wrong. Let's close the book on that and let's start a new page. And that was the view that I took. So that cleared the slate instead of spending a lot of time looking at the past to move forward. And I know that your major initiative was to expand educational television, but you told me that the V's were all taken. So tell us about what you did about that. Well, I realized the Federal Communication Commission had made a couple of bad mistakes in the beginning. They hadn't allocated enough channels for educational use. In fact, in the two large cities that had seven channels, New York and Los Angeles, they had not even taken one out of the seven and set it aside for educational use, which was a terrible blunder. Oddly enough, in Chicago, which had five channels where I lived, one had been set aside for educational television. And I thought, in my ignorance, uh, I thought everybody had an educational channel set aside. President Kennedy, coming from Boston, was very familiar with WGBH. He thought everybody had a educational television channel. And we couldn't believe when we discovered none in Washington, none in New York, none in Los Angeles, none in Philadelphia, none in Baltimore. I mean, we went around the country. So I realized that the only way we could do this was to move to UHF for uh, the educational stations if they wanted to broadcast over the air. Then one day we got lucky. Well, I should say two places we got lucky. A wonderful woman named Elizabeth Campbell, who was a school teacher in Washington, had been trying for years to get an educational station in Washington, and it was a UHF station. And one of the commissioners, Robert Lee, a conservative Republican, had been helping her. And he then told me, he said, I see you're interested in educational television. I'm going to turn Mrs. Campbell over to you, and I'm going to give you the pleasure of handing her her first license. And I did that the very same day, by coincidence, of the Vast Wasteland speech. What else happened that day? What else happened that day? I flew home for our oldest daughter's brownie dinner. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so what was, a day. That was a busy day. Um, but then the second thing that happened was I read in the paper in the New York Times that a VHF television station in New York was for sale and that a group of foundations were trying to buy it and convert it into an educational station. And I realized this was an extraordinary opportunity. And I figured out, with the help of one of the senior commissioners, a way to send a message that we would not approve any sale unless it was to a not-for-profit educational station. And when that word went out, eventually that's what happened, and WNET changed from a commercial to a non-commercial station. Mrs. Campbell got her station on the air in Washington. 
I had somebody in Los Angeles trying to build a station, Lee Dubridge, the president of, of Caltech. So I could see the beginning of a national service that would eventually evolve, and that led eventually to the creation of first uh, NET, the National Educational Television Network, and then eventually to PBS. Well, there's such a com fascinating combination of factors here, going back to the Vast Wasteland speech, where you tell the broadcasters, I don't want the government to force you to do things. We're not, that's not what kind of country we are. Um, so it's like finding a way to have the private sector married to the public interest um, that is part of what the FCC's obligation was. And you say that in the speech a year after the Vast Wasteland speech, that uh, broadcasters have this great power and responsibility to the public. Yeah, we can cue that up, a clip from that. You broadcasters are at the center of the national debate, and what a lucky place that is to be. You are in the eye of the hurricane. Your public trust is the obligation to move forward here, now, today, to perfect this magnificent instrument of broadcasting. The public must have its say in your planning and your building. It must because you are much more than an industry. For the nation, you are our theater our concert hall, our newsroom, our stadium, our picture window to the world. You shape the national conscience. You guide our children. You have it in your hands and hearts to shape history. Am I guilty of asking too much of broadcasting? Or are you guilty of asking too little? Thank you. Well, that's what we've tried to do. We did the same thing, the same philosophy, Chris, with the communication satellite, which was a partnership of the government and the private sector. And I still believe in that philosophy. I, th I think that's the, the way we should do more things. But then it turned out that the communication satellite benefited everybody, but in particular, it benefited public television because public television didn't have a way to connect the stations. And the first entity to build a satellite network was PBS, before the commercial networks did. And the result of that is that we were then able to have a national service, which led to, fortunately, to better programming and uniting the country and the bringing a lot of extraordinary creative talent to work in public uh, broadcasting. What was your role in getting the satellite launched? Well, the satellite, actually, two things happened the, the first day on the job. One was what I told you was the uh, meeting about what position we should take on the educational television legislation. The other, one of the senior commissioners came in to see me. He was an engineer, and he said, um, his name Commissioner Craven. He said, do you know what a communication satellite is? And I said, no. And he groaned. He said, I was, he said, I was afraid of that. He said, this is so important, and I can't get anybody around here interested. And he said, I'm telling you, this is the one area in space where we're ahead of the Russians, and I can't get anybody interested. And I said, if you educate me, and I conclude that you were right, I said, I promise you, I will work on this hard. 
And he did educate me, and I realized he was exactly right, that this was the one place where we could make a huge difference. And I worked on that. In fact, I got to the point one day President Kennedy said, why are you bugging us all the time about this communication satellite? I said, Mr. President, this is more important than sending a man into space. And he said, why? I said, this is going to send ideas into space. Ideas last longer than people. And we were the first. We organized and got it through Congress. I testified in Congress 13 times before different committees. But we got it done in 1962. We launched the first communication satellite. It worked, thank God. And that today, I had... I have to say to you, I have no idea how important it was. I knew it was important. I didn't know how extraordinarily important it was. We would not have the things like navigation, cheap telephone calls, the ability to see what's going on everywhere in the world live. I mean, this is an extraordinary thing that has happened as a result of the communications satellite. And we actually have a clip of uh, you appeared on Eleanor Roosevelt's show, Prospects of Mankind, in uh, May of 1962, and you talked about um, this, this satellite innovation. So let's listen to a clip from that. And I don't think anyone knows. I'd like to ask Mr. Minow what, in fact, and who will program uh, the, the satellite system when it is, in fact, permanently in place some years Well, as sense. they say on television, that's a $64,000 question. The... Uh, the networks are, are cooperating at the government's request. The networks are cooperating at the government's request in this uh, first uh, program. I would hope myself that uh, channels will be set aside for the United Nations. I'd hope uh, someday, Mrs. Roosevelt, that when a great issue is debated at the UN, that it might be seen all over the world. This would be one of the, it seems to me, one of the greatest uh, avenues toward peace and human understanding that would be possible. I'd hope that uh, the USIA would have some use in it, but all these judgments are going to have to be made. I think it's time the nation started thinking about this, thinking what we want to do. We've we constantly have technology and science exploding faster than our capacity to think about what we want to do with it humanly. Uh, Mrs. Roosevelt, what do, you, what do you envisage, really, that this little satellite should do? I know that you uh, have an abhorrence, which I think we share, of the word Ameri image of America. Would you like to comment on that as far as... Well, I, I hope we will stop trying to create an image of America because America is many images. I don't think you can create an image of America. But I think you can show um, different aspects of America and American life and thought and that I would hope this little satellite would do. And I don't mean by that that it has to be all the good things and none of the bad things, because I think that's one of the sad things that we have done, that sometimes people think that we only want to tell them where our successes are and never where our failures are. And in a democracy, I think we know that we haven't a perfect democracy, and therefore that we have to have some failures. But I would hope very much that um, it would not be, as you said, there was fear that it might be just used as a propaganda medium for one nation or another nation, or, but that it would show 
different nations in their strivings to arrive at something better than they now had. And I think that would, that would be a real advantage if we could really see the strivings of people the world over. And it would help us in many ways to know what to do ourselves. The All Channels Act also ushered in the chip that had to go into the televisions had to go from a very expensive price down to a very cheap price to satisfy this All Channels Act. Well, Mary, you're the one that found a clip of an engineer, I forgot what company, he was with one of the tech companies, in which he said that the all-channel requirement forced them to make smaller and smaller and smaller things that led to the chip. So it had an enormous consequence beyond the all-channel legislation. It changed a lot of the technology. Point being, one thing leads to another that you don't expect. And one step follows another step. And in this case, the all-channel legislation produced an advance in technology. And before we leave this, you mentioned Mrs. Roosevelt. I have to tell you a story about Mrs. Roosevelt. Please do. One day, Mrs. Roosevelt, this was months before she died, she called me on the phone at the office. And she said, why aren't you answering Reverend Smith? And I said, Miss Roosevelt, I'm sorry. I said, I don't know who Reverend Smith is or what this is. Tell me what it's about. She said, Reverend Smith is a black minister in Jackson, Mississippi, running in the Democratic primary for Congress against the incumbent, John Bell Williams. And he went to the local television station, WLBT, with a check wanting to buy some time on television for his campaign. And she said, well, the station told him to come back next week. And he'd been coming back every week for the last six weeks. And next week is the election. And he filed a complaint with the Federal Communications Commission, and he hasn't gotten any response. So I said, I'll get right on it. And I check around, and sure enough, on the staff desk somewhere, I find that Reverend Smith's complaint is sitting there. And I said to the staff, what about this? And they said, well, we checked with his opponent, and his opponent is not buying any time. And the law, Section 315, Communications Act says, if a station sells time to one, it must sell time to the other. If it gives time to one, it must give time to the other. But since the opponent is not buying any time, and since the station is not giving any time, therefore, there is no equal time complaint. I said, wait a minute. I said, the Communications Act says that the broadcaster is to serve the public interest. Why is it in the public interest to have no discussion whatever about this congressional race? So I dictated a telegram to the station. I said, tell us why it's in the public interest to have nothing on your air involving this congressional race, and tell us today. And within hours, their lawyer came in to see me in the office, said, we're putting him on the air. I said, when? They said, soon. I said, what does that mean? I said, the election is next week. They said, we're putting him on tomorrow. I said, okay. So he went on the air, he lost the election, but Merle Evers, the widow of Medgar Evers, the civil rights leader, she said something in a quote, she said, it was like the lights going on. 
to see a black candidate on television? I then, not too long after that, I left the uh, FCC. Now we fast forward to 1996. This is now 30 years later almost. And I'm a delegate to the Democratic Convention in Chicago. And I was invited to meet the Mississippi delegation. And a man came up to me and he said, Minnow, Minnow, Minnow. He said, are you the Minnow that was chairman of the FCC? I said, yes. He said, don't you know who I am? I said, no. I said, tell me. It was Aaron, Aaron, Aaron Henry. Aaron Henry. He said, I'm Aaron Henry. He said, you don't know who I am? I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Henry. He said, I was Reverend Smith's campaign manager. Oh, wow. I'm the one who called Mrs. Roosevelt. <laughs> I said, well, what do you do now, Mr. Henry? He said, you don't know what I do now? I said, no, I don't. He said, I am the chairman of Station WLBT. I said, what? <laughs> he said, after you left, the station persisted in that same racist policy. And the United Church of Christ, led by uh, Reverend uh, Parker, came to us and said, we would like to challenge their license, and we'd like you to apply as a challenger. And they funded us, and we had a long, long battle, and we finally won, and we owned the station. Mm -hmm. And I said to myself, Mrs. Roosevelt should know should only know what, what happened uh, because it's an extraordinary, this is an extraordinary story. Well, and it's also full circle from the Bass Wasteland speech because you end that speech saying, we can take your licenses. Like, this isn't just an empty threat. We can take your license, so. And, and it happened. Mm -hmm. So that ties into this question I have about the role of government and private industry. My sister Martha just wrote a book called Saving the News, for which you wrote a preface. And she makes an argument that the government has uh, not only a permission, but an obligation to help save local news. What do you think about that? Well, it's a, she teaches constitutional law at Harvard Law School. And she has a view that's a little different than most constitutional law experts, because she says, and she's right, in my view. She said there's only one institution, one private institution mentioned in the Constitution. Only one. It's the press. And it's in the First Amendment. And people think the First Amendment is a restriction on government about the press. She, she reads it to mean it's the duty of the government to protect the press. Not to harm the press, but to protect the press. And she says, now you've got the internet and you've got the arguments about what is the government's role, if any, with Facebook and with Google and with uh, Twitter. And, and she said that in her view, there's nothing in the Constitution that stops the government from setting some rules here. And I happen to agree with her. In, in fact, my three daughters, Mary, Martha, and Nell, have just participated in doing a conversation about this. We all differ. We, none of us agree with the, each other, but I think very strongly that the government has a public interest role here, which it should exercise, particularly after we see what happened January 6th and all the things that happened on the social media to organize January 6th. 
but that's another day. <laughs> well, so, so what is the role of government with public broadcasting? In 1962, President Kennedy signed the Educational Television Facilities Act, the first major federal aid to public broadcasting. Should the government be doing more? Well, the government, uh, I think that we've got a pretty good arrangement. There's not enough money involved. The, the federal government spends exactly $1.35 per person per year on public broadcasting and public radio. $1.35 per person per year. If you look at other countries, that's a pitiful, pitiful investment in public broadcasting. If you look at England, Canada, Japan, Germany, France, we, we are way, way behind. But it's a beginning, and we do it, one thing I'll say, we do it in a very intelligent way. We do it on a matching basis with people contributing money. I think we should do a lot more. I, I say that for a, a very, very compelling reason. Of all the public opinion polls, what is the most trusted institution in America? It is public radio and public television the most trusted institution in America. Think of that. In a, in a world in which hardly anybody trusts anybody, <laughs> it was still because public broadcasting has earned the trust of the American people because it is fair, because it presents alternative points of view, and because it isn't partisan. And its underlying mission is the public interest. Exactly. And, uh, and I think we've only been at it decades, I think its best days and best contributions are still ahead. So and just circling back then to the uh, uh, Educational Television Facilities Act of 1962, where uh, Congress gave the first major federal aid to public broadcasting. Any thoughts about the importance of that? Well, the importance of it was to, um, because if ever the um, concern was about the federal government creating content or propaganda, this was limited to facilities, to buildings or uh, broadcasting equipment. And that answered that concern or the, that opposition. So that it was deliberately written to help a local community buy the equipment or, or build a tower to uh, begin a station. Well, and again, there's such a nuanced understanding of law, of politics, of public service that comes together in so many of the things that you've been involved with. Well, the main thing I think that I saw, because I've been involved in politics with uh, Governor Stevenson, and I kept telling this to the uh, educational television people, the only way you'll get anything done in Congress is if you bring the local people to come and see their congressmen and their senators. They're not going to pay any attention to you representing a national organization. But if you bring the person from South Bend, Indiana, to see the congressman, believe me, they'll be listening with uh, the, their ears and their hearts. So then we organized that the lobbying, the legislative effort, should all be done from local, 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 local. And that's why, in many ways, we've been successful. And that's at the heart of PBS structure, too, you know, compared to the networks. Like, it's, it's changed, about localism. I changed that. Until then, the PBS was doing the lobbying. I said, forget it. Stay home, PBS. Just bring in the, bring in the local people. And, and that works. Yeah. One year, we did something I thought was very interesting. We ran it like a political convention 
we had states all seated with their state banner, and we invited the congressman to come and sit with his constituents and the senators, and it made it very local. And everybody was there. We, I think we had all 50 states. Uh, later, you went on to chair WTTW. Can you tell us anything about those years? Well, I chaired WTTW. WTTW was started because a man in Chicago named Edward L. Ryerson, who was in many ways Mr. Chicago. He was chairman of Inland Steel. He was chairman of the University of Chicago. He was chairman of the symphony. He was chairman of the Republican Party. And a friend of his in, from Boston named Ralph Lowell called him on the phone one day and he said, Edward, there's a new thing called public television and my guys here tell me that a channel was set aside in Chicago and you should organize a group and apply for it. And Edward Robertson didn't know anything about television, he didn't know anything about public television, but he said, Is it, would this be good for Chicago? And Mr. Lowell said, yes. So Edward Robertson said, then I'll do it. And he did. And he organized what became WTTW. And when he retired, he asked me to take his place, which I did. And then I became chairman of PBS. Again, a conservative Republican named Ralph Rogers in Dallas, Texas, was the first chairman of PBS. And the joy to me, even though I'm a Democrat, the joy to me is that bipartisanship or nonpartisanship has been the rule in public broadcasting. We have managed somehow to stay out of politics. We've managed to get the support of Congress on a bipartisan basis, and we've managed somehow to, for the most part at least, to stay out of politics. That's a perfect setup for my next question, which is what was your role in getting Sesame Street off the ground? That's a wild, wild story. <laughs> in fact, you're going to tell me I made it up. But I'll what happened was um, I was on the board of NET, which was the predecessor of PBS, and I had a call from Dean Birch. Dean Birch was Goldwater's campaign manager in 64, and I knew him from politics. And um, Nixon was elected in 64, Dean Birch called me and he said, Newt, he said, I think I just made a mistake. I need some advice. I said, what is it? He said, President-elect Nixon called me. This was after he was elected, but before he took office. He called me and he asked me to be chairman of the FCC. And I said, no. And I'm thinking about it. Maybe I sh should have said yes. What do you think? I said, why did you say no? He said, I've got a successful law practice. He lived in Tucson, Arizona. He said, I've got a swimming pool. My kids are in school. <laughs> I said, you made a huge mistake. I said, this is one of the great opportunities for public service. You should change your mind. Call Nixon immediately before you get somebody else and tell him you change your mind, you'll do it, which he did. Then he takes the job, and he's there a couple months, and he calls me. He says, all right, big shot, you talk me into this. He said, next time you're in Washington, stop by. I need to get some ideas. Well, I looked at my calendar. I was going to the NET board meeting in New York. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. That board meeting will finish. I'll take the shuttle. I'll meet you for a drink in, in Washington. I can still catch the plane to get home that night. So 
at the meeting, we hear Joan Cooney present Sesame Street. She has finished a pilot, and we see the pilot, and she explains what she's trying to do. And I was knocked out by it. And I'm sitting with my classmate, who was also on the board, Pete Peterson, footnote. He later marries Joan Cooney. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm knocked out by this. And I go to see Dean Birch, and he says, well, what do you, what do you, have you got any ideas for me? So I tell him about this. He says, what's her name? I said, Joan Cooney. He said, what does she look like? I said, she, well, she's probably in her 40s, 50s. She's sort of medium size. He said, is she married? I said, well, I'm trying to think. She was introduced as Joan Gans Cooney. So Gans must be her single name, and Cooney must be her married name. He said, no, he says, you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you. I said, what? He said, I asked her to marry me when we went to the University of Arizona together. Where is she? Where do I get a hold of her? So I got them in touch, and he says, how can I help you? And she says, I've got foundation money to produce the program, but I tried to get money from the government, from HEW, now HHS. I asked them for a million dollars to handle the distribution, and they turned me down. So Dean says, well, I think I can help you because I'll take you to see Barry Goldwater because Goldwater has got the budget for HEW. And she says, I'll come anytime. I'll be there whenever you tell me. So he takes her to see Goldwater, and Goldwater looks over her paperwork and says, Joan Gans Cooney. She says, are you from Arizona? She says, yes, I'm from Phoenix. And she says, Gans, are you related to Harry Gans? She says, that was my uncle. And Goldwater gets up and gives her a big hug, and he says, Harry Gantz gave me my first contribution when I first ran for office. He gave me $50. <laughs> and he said, what can I do for you? <laughs> so she tells him her story, and he gets very interested. And he calls the secretary of HEW, who was named Casper Weinberger, and he says, why aren't you helping her? She's trying to do things for little kids. It'll be very good. So anyway, she gets the million dollars. Mm. And um, so, the, as I say, you're going to not believe me when I tell you that story. It was quite a $50 investment that paid off. <laughs> <laughs> and bipartisan. You say that Goldwater was the... Goldwater was a conservative Republican. Was the godfather of Sesame Street. Right. <laughs> Also, you mentioned uh, your time at National Educational Television. Anything you wanted to uh, comment about? Any important developments when you were involved with National Educational Television? Well, to me, the big dream I had, and um, actually Mary found this for me, being a librarian, she can find anything. <laughs> I wrote an article for Playboy magazine oh. in the 60s. Uh, July 68 because what I was urging was that educational television programming be much better. Mm -hmm. To me, the, too often they had a, it was dull, it was not mm -hmm. provocative, it was not interesting. Well, that was another fascinating part of that roundtable with Eleanor Roosevelt, that idea that there's not a division between entertainment and education, that ideally they, they basically feed off of each other. Right. Well, so I wrote this article, and in it, what I urged more than anything else was a great course in American history. And of course, along comes 
in, in the 70s and 80s, along comes Ken Burns. And to me, that was the fulfillment of what I dreamed educational television could be. Ed educational television today, the quality of it, to me, is as good as commercial television. That was not true for many, many, many years. Well, it's remarkable listening, again, to the speeches and the roundtables, uh, you know, all of which are, uh, I'll put in a plug, preserved in the AAPB digital collection, but how much what you were saying is fulfilled by, at least in part, by just the volume of outlets we have now. Because you were pushing, for instance, the, the All Channel Receiver Act. We need competition. We need more outlets. We need more people making more things. And, you know, we could debate about the quality of everything today or, or whatever, but that's been borne out, the idea that, or even, again, a, a little side note for those who don't know TV history, the All Channel Receiver Act helped to create the Fox Network, because a lot of those UHF stations became part of what Rupert Murdoch used to put together the Fox Network, which brought competition to the networks, which changed even what 80s television was about. And so a lot of those things you were saying in the 1960s have been, have been borne out by how basically almost technology is caught up with a lot of the vision that you had. Pardon the interruption, and I'll return you to the conversation shortly, but a few days after we met, Mary Minow got in touch to bring my attention to another speech in the AAPB's Newton Minow collection that she and her father had listened to together. She suggested we could try to work it into our recorded conversation, so that's what you're about to hear. This speech took place in October 1961, so about five months after the Bass Wasteland speech, and it was delivered to the National Association of Educational Broadcasters. Mary described the speech as one in which her father, quote, riles up the educational broadcasters to educate themselves on money, UHF receivers, and the All Channel Act, and to act in their own best political interest. She continued, it's actually as good as his vast wasteland speech and far more specific about the path forward. So that alone sold it to me, but I wanted to insert this specific excerpt from the speech here uh, because I think it additionally speaks to my observation that Mr. Minow foresaw how expanding the number of channels via the All Channel Receiver Act and the UHF converter or tuner the bill would require to be built into newly manufactured TV sets would help boost the quality and breadth of TV programming, an argument borne out by developments in recent decades. But before I play the clip, I wanted to flag a moment in this excerpt where Mr. Minow notes that this great future of boundless opportunity for educational non-commercial television, quote, cannot be assured on the basis of a gadget, end quote. And in fact, a variety of factors well beyond his control ended up limiting those opportunities for many years. But his vision expressed here still points toward the promise of the multi-channel era that we had discussed at that point in our conversation. So here is an excerpt of Newton Minow speaking to the NAEB in October 1961 with the full speech available at AmericanArchive.org, of course. And after that, we'll pick right back up with Mr. Minow in the present responding to my observation about how the multi-channel era ended up changing TV. The conversion of the now standard set certainly is the best short-term answer for filling out the UHF audience. But the long-term solution is obviously the all-channel receiver. Now, with the VHF band saturated and UHF just waiting to be used, there is no sensible reason why we should continue to limp along with sets that will receive only 12 channels. Why should any television set manufactured in this country leave the factory incapable of receiving seven-eighths of the channels available for television broadcasting in America? All that is required is building a converter into the set in the first place rather than placing it on top later at considerably greater expense. What is involved is the fairly simple modification of only one part of the television set, 
the tuning circuit, the part that's hooked up to the channel switch in the front. Some manufacturers have estimated that the all-channel receiver would cost only $20 to $30 more to turn out than the 12-channel set now on the market. This cost could probably fall to around $10 on a volume mass production basis. For a piece of equipment costing around $200, this is not overwhelming. For $30 or less, the public is denied access to 7 eighths, 7 eighths of the public airwaves. There are still some technical problems to be solved, to be sure, in turning out a set that reaches from the bottom of the VHF to the top of the UHF. But we cannot believe that these minor technical problems will stump the inventive genius of our manufacturers or are beyond the reach of the electronic art. Now, the Federal Communications Commission, and I hasten to add this was before I arrived, has proposed legislation which would require that television sets manufactured for shipment in interstate commerce be capable of receiving all channels. I agree completely with the Commission's policy adopted before I got there and support it wholeheartedly. The bill to accomplish this was introduced in the Senate by Senator Magnuson. It is numbered S-2109. The House bill introduced by Representative Harris is numbered H.R. 8031. Now, I'd like to do a little lobbying if I can tonight. How hard has the NAEB worked for these bills? How thoroughly have the hundreds of organizations interested in education and television been canvassed for support? You can have the best friends at the FCC that you've ever had, but they cannot help you unless you help us. Are you working with the FCC with public support to win public support for this legislation? Where is a simple pamphlet explaining these educational television facts of life? While a nationwide educational television system cannot be assured on the basis of a gadget, I'm convinced that this one, the converter and its grown-up brother, the all-channel receiver, are the key to ultimately ending this frustrating and wasteful distinction between VHF and UHF at the receiving end. Once we have the reception, the American public will be able to watch all of television, not just part of it. And just as the usable spectrum will be broadened, so will our choices between commercial and non-commercial stations, between pure entertainment and enrichment, between fantasy and reality. Television itself will speak with many more voices, and our freedom to choose will be enlarged. And this, after all, is the essence of America. And, of course, the downside is of that is that when we had only a couple of networks, television often was a unifying thing. Today, when you have so many different views, and particularly now when people don't agree on facts, people disagree on what is a fact, now you have, uh, I, I think about two things that happened. One was JFK's murder. The other was 9-11. In each case, it was television that pulled the country together something terrible happened now, I'm not so sure. So that's the other side of it. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and again, in the, in the Eleanor Roosevelt panel, you talked about the idea, like, there needs to be more space for minority voices and for the underrepresented, and we have that now, but again, it's more than you get siloed into bubbles rather than having cross-communication, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, the importance of ideas crossing galaxies even. And if we're at the point at which these ideas are getting siloed rather than spread, that seems like a problem. When you have people now still arguing about who won the election, about whether the vaccines are safe, 
I, I think that's that's the downside. That's a, and it's and I think that's a very dangerous thing. And people also disagree about things that were in history, and that's why the AAPB is so valuable to have an archive of what you know the actual videos of what and audios of what happened before. So my final question to you is: What inspired you to go on the AAPB board, and what advice do you give to your daughter who's on the board now? Well. I knew you would be valuable to them because as a librarian, you love libraries. In fact, President Obama appointed Mary to the Institute of Library Service. That's the federal agency that gives money to libraries. I think what's important for the AAPB is that history, let's say 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, people will be able to see and hear what life was like now, what we can learn from our experience now, what lessons there are, what insights there are. So I think it's essential, not only for scholars, but for everyday people, and particularly for youngsters, to have a chance to learn and see what was produced. I think some things will be timeless. My hunch is that Sesame Street will be seen for generations. My hunch is that Ken Burns' stuff will be seen for generations. I think the great things from live from Lincoln Center with the great artistic contributions, the great music, the great opera, the great everything. It, it's, it's so, Mary showed me this morning for the first time, so easy to find and see it on your computer. Uh, you don't have to go anywhere. You can stay at home and, and see it. This is a gift. And to see, it, uh, years from now, to see Judy Woodruff present the news and, and all sides of the news of what, what was on people's minds at that time. Let's say 25 years from now, some youngster wants to see uh, what was the debate on this issue. The youngster can look up the PBS NewsHour and get a very thorough explanation of what the issue was and, and what the sides were and what the arguments were. That, that's a gift. Well, this feels like another full circle moment because, again, things that you did, things that you helped push through, things that you helped support are responsible for why I'm here recording you for the AAPB and that this will be housed on the AAPB website for, again, however that things last. Yeah, so we another nice full circle feeling here. Well, it, it certainly is for me at my age. Any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with about television, about um, your legacy in television? Well, I have been blessed by seeing every side of this elephant. Very deeply committed to educational television, but I've been involved with commercial television. I've been involved with publishing. I've been involved on the boards of book publishers, magazine publishers, newspaper publishers. I've seen every side of the... Uh, advertising agencies, big advertiser, uh, seen every side of the elephant, including the backside. <laughs> <laughs> and but but I and I've seen it from the government side. Uh, I've been appointed three presidential commissions by different presidents of different parties. I've, I've been blessed with getting a pretty full picture. And I don't see any bad people. I see people, you know, each with a different goal, each with a different job, 
but overall, I see what is in the Communications Act. I see the public interest. And what I think we've got to always remember more than anything else is that our job in public broadcasting is to serve the public interest, to serve the public interest. If you remember that every morning and say, what can I do today to advance the public interest? That's the important thing. Well, Mary, any final thoughts about, you know, your father's legacy, growing up seeing your father's legacy play out? Well, I was only allowed a half hour of television as Oh, a kid. there we go. But there was no content restriction. I could pick whatever so I wanted. So any half hour you want, yeah. but just a half hour? <laughs> yeah. So, so he's the best father in the world. And I think uh, his three daughters will agree to that. My mother will ask what we talked about and if we mentioned her. So I do want to mention that my parents just celebrated their 72nd wedding anniversary. That is incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. We're out to beat Jimmy Carter. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for, for joining us at Presenting the Past. Really appreciate your time and just a fascinating conversation. So thank you, Mr. Minow. I can't thank you enough because this is a great break for me. And, I, and I'm so pleased our daughter Mary and you participated in it. I'm looking forward to hearing it. All right. Thank you, Mary. Thank you. And thank you to the listeners for your attention to this episode of Presenting the Past. I invite you to the AAPB website where you can look at the special collection, Broadcasting in the Public Interest, the Newton Minow Collection. And so all the speeches we've talked about, the Eleanor Roosevelt uh, Roundtable, and more are at that site. I'd also like to thank sound engineer Todd Thompson at the University of Texas at Austin for his post-production work on this podcast. Also to Kevin Kurzmanich at the University of Notre Dame for recording this. Um, and thank you to Bill Kirkpatrick at Denison University for his assistance with distributing the podcast. And finally, thank you to Rin Marchese at the AAPB for her help with planning and organizing these podcasts. Please join us next month for another deep dive into the digital resources of the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. 